Our scripture reading will be from Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we were released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall then we say? That the, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. This is the word of the Lord. I will say this morning as we jump into this passage of scripture... I have the privilege of teaching uh, some of these folks, Old Testament, New Testament at Montreat. And uh, sometimes I say in class, this is one of those where you have to sit up straight, pay attention, don't slouch because uh, you've got to use your brain. And so this is a sermon where you have to use your brain this morning. We've heard great music, great praying, and uh, now we're going to do some great thinking as we look into God's Word together talking about the making of a saint. And in order for us to get this, Paul is going to use the example of death and marriage. It's fascinating the example Paul uses. Paul is going to uh, talk about death, and death isn't very attractive. We don't like to talk about death. Uh, proof of this, proof positive of this, is a funeral home in Pensacola, Florida uh, that shut down in 2005. Uh, this funeral home gave uh, people the option of doing drive-through viewing. All right, so uh, you could uh, drive through and uh, view the body of the person and listen to their motto. Their uh, motto was, in your time of need, put your trust in us. We're friends like family. Something about that doesn't appear to be friendly or family-like. Some of us will go a long way to get away from death uh, because it isn't attractive, but we're going to discover today that your spiritual death 
in a sense. When you died with Christ, when Christ died, and I know some of you are saying, oh, wow, already, Jerry, you've lost me, so you're going to have to hang with me. You're going to discover that that can be one of the most liberating truths you will ever, ever get. And in order to paint the picture, Paul gives a picture of a woman who is bound to a husband he describes her as. Now, I've provided a chart for you. Yes, a chart in your notes. Never do that. But there's one here, and there should be a number one at the bottom left-hand corner. So add that number one. I'll refer to the chart throughout. It will help you to take notes today. We're going to look at three principles that give us this understanding that Paul is going for, and they seem strange when they stand alone, but we'll put some meat on the bones, and I think it will make sense to you. Principle number one, jot it down. Death frees us from legal obligation. Death frees us from legal obligation. Paul says in verse one that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Uh, So when you die, the law stops having any effect on you. And then he's going to illustrate, and he's going to talk about a woman who is bound to. That's the interesting word, a woman who is bound to a husband. When the husband dies, she is no longer married to him, so she is released from her responsibility. The word Paul uses here is huge. All right, so there's a typical word that is used to describe being married. Paul doesn't use that word. He uses the word bound. And that word bound, uh, seldom give a word in Greek, I'll do it today, hypondros. It means to be under. The woman is under her husband. Paul pictures her uh, being under her husband, and he's not a good guy. Uh, Because if he was a good guy, we wouldn't use the word bound. All right. So uh, if uh, when my wife and I are going to celebrate 15 years of marriage this July, and when we do, I'm not going to say, you know, I don't Facebook, but if I did or if I Instagrammed, I wouldn't say uh, Wendy and I have been bound together for 15 years. That's not going to make for a good anniversary, is it? Not at all. People are going to say, wow, you don't view your marriage any better than that. So when Paul uses this language of being bound to, under uh, this uh, woman, this woman under this man, it is negative. And so Paul is saying that we are under the law. Uh, A woman in those days could not initiate divorce, only a man. All right, so the woman could not initiate divorce. Only the man could. She was stuck. She was trapped. She was set. She could do nothing. And you and I are under the law. We're stuck. All right, you say, well, what is the law? If I'm stuck under the law, what is it? Well, succinctly, we would say it's the the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. Broadened, we would say it's the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, Let me read to you a small section from the law. All right, and this section has to do with unintentional sin. Not the stuff you did on purpose, 
but the stuff you do accidentally. Listen to how many times you hear the word guilt. I'm reading from Leviticus um, and li- uh, 5, 15 through 19. Listen to how many times you hear the word guilt. Here we go. If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, that means anything, right? That shouldn't be done, though he did not know it. So the person sinned without realizing it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering and he has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. So in the early service, I'm flanked by students, front and both sides, and they shouted out six. Six times the word guilt shows up for unintentional sin. All right, not the stuff you did on purpose, but the sin you committed accidentally. The thing you didn't mean to do incurs that much guilt. That is the law that we are under, and you must say, oh, but that's Old Testament. We're good, right? James. James 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Oh, are you kidding me? Like, I do all of the laws. There's 600 and some of them. So I do 613, but I mess up on number 614, and all of a sudden I've got the whole list coming down on me. That's what James says. Any of the laws you break, you're guilty of all. The law is a package deal. We carry it like a heavy weight on our shoulders. We do. And and we're hypondros under it. We're bound to it. Even the most reputable people have things they want no one to know about. Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, in his day, did an interesting trick on 12 of his upstanding good friends. He sent them a little message that said, All is discovered. Fly at once. And within 24 hours, every one of them had left the country. Why? We all have things that we don't want others to know about us, don't we? Some of you just today had thoughts that if we were to put them on the screen, everybody around you would go, oh, right? Some of you uh, said something things to your kids while they were getting ready for church today 
that you definitely don't want on the screen. Or you said things on the way to church because you were mad about how you tried to get here on time. There are these things that lie beneath. So what frees this woman from being bound to this man? Uh, Paul answers that question in verse 4. If you look at verse 4, Paul says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. It's through the body of Christ. So go to the chart where I ask you to write a number one and just simply write crucified with Christ. Draw a cross and write crucified with Christ. All right, so when you, uh, are cru- when you come to Christ by faith, you are crucified with him. You say, uh, Jerry, I didn't feel that. Um, I want to step aside and say that I was 15 years old when I was saved, when I was born again. And I had no clue what happened to me. Honestly, this didn't begin to sink in until I was about 32. I was listening to a sermon series on this very section of Scripture when God began to reveal to me these these important, uh, life-changing principles. Uh, Galatians 2, 19 and 20 Uh, Paul says, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You have been crucified with Christ. If you look at the chart, you see number one, you see number two at the top, and the word justification. When you came to God by faith in Jesus, you were immediately justified. Meaning when God looks at you, if you are a born-again follower of Christ, are you ready for this? He sees no sin. He sees you just as if you had never sinned. That's justification. You're declared righteous. That's immediate. There is nothing you can do to make yourself more justified. That's how God views you. Here's the problem. That's not how we view ourselves. That's our problem. Most of us who know Christ view ourselves as a composite picture of a bunch of failures, a bunch of sin, a list of wrongs, a list of missed opportunities. And then we have a tendency to view others the same way. We judge. We were crucified with Christ. Jesus was our perfect representative. You say, so how should this affect the way I live? One word, focus. Focus. What do you mean? You will never overcome sin by focusing on sin. Ever. You you won't do it. 
most coaches and athletes will tell you that if you only focus on the mistakes you make, you'll make more. It's the same in life. Say, what do you mean? All right. Let's say that uh, you wake up in the morning and you say, this will be a new day. And in this day, I will not lose my cool. Not going to happen. I'm going to keep it together today. I'm not going to lose my cool today. All right? So for all the local McDowell Countyans, Highway 70. All right? Highway 70, right here. Two lanes, 15,000 cars. We've seen the study pass right in front of this building every day. And 14,900 of them have nowhere to go. Uh, they just crawl. Like, you get on that highway, and somebody in front of you has nowhere to go. And you're like, oh, I've got to get here. I've got to get there. You don't want to ride their bumper, but you'd like to bump them off the road. And you said, I will have a good attitude today. I will have a good attitude. And all of a sudden, road rage like moves into the passenger seat, right? And they're right inside of you, and you're right on their bumper before you even realize it. A focus on sin will not help you to quit sinning. It won't. I mean, just try this. If you ever do a diet and you say, well, I'm not going to eat chocolate today. As soon as the word chocolate comes out of your mouth, what is your next thought? What do you want? Chocolate. Like some of you, your mouth is watering now, isn't it? It is, because mine is too. Like you want chocolate because you think of chocolate, you want chocolate. That's the way sin is. And most believers live their lives with a sin focus. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. And you say it so much that you end up doing the very thing you said you would never, ever do. Our death with Christ not only frees us from legal obligation, secondly, write it down, death frees us for a new relationship. Death frees us from a legal obligation and death frees us for a new relationship. Paul says, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. All right. This word belong is really cool. In the ESV, it's translated belong. In the New American Standard, it's translated joined to. The NIV translates it belong, and the old King James says married. It's the word Paul could have used to describe the man and his wife. He chose bound. And now, when he talks about our new life in Christ, the word is belong. Let me ask you a question. If you had a choice... Would you rather be bound to someone or joined to them? Would you rather be bound or would you rather belong? Of course. Everybody wants to 
belong. Everybody. Everywhere. Tries to find the place where somebody or a group of people say, you're accepted. When you gave your life to Christ, you immediately belonged. Immediately. Accepted. Loved. Married to. Uh, What happens? Guilt moves out and grace moves in. That's what happens. Guilt moves out and grace moves in. Larry Christensen, I love it, in his work, The Renewed Mind, describes it this way, and I'll read. He said, let's say that you live in an apartment under a demanding landlord. The rent has to be paid on time, every time, and if you're a moment late, you're penalized. Every month, it seems, the rent increases. Your landlord comes into your apartment at will and checks to see that all is perfectly arranged. He keeps a clean house. One day you hear the news. Someone has come in and bought the apartment complex. You meet your new landlord and to your surprise discover that you don't even have to pay rent. It's paid. It's free. You never have to undergo the meticulous inspections again. This landlord visits you, sometimes dropping by just for an occasional chat. He brings you things he thinks you need. You don't know how to act. Then one day, you hear a knock on the door. It's a familiar knock. You know it too well. You go to the door, knowing who's standing there. It's that old landlord. And before you know it, you're opening the door. He's reminding you of how you don't measure up. The bill you owe, the debt, the rising cost of rent, and before you know it, you try to pay. You don't have to open the door. The old landlord, the the law, has no right in your home. He can exact no payment from you. You have a new landlord who is also your friend. Why? Why do we answer that door? Why, when we say we have been saved by grace through faith, do we now try to live it in our own power? Pay our own bill. Cancel our own debt. That has been paid in full. Verse 5 says, While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And then I love, but now. I say this every time I come across one. If you write in your Bibles, you should underline that little phrase. Sometimes it would be a great study just to go through and look at all the but nows in Scripture, these, uh, these tiny little conjunctive statements that completely change the course of what's happening in Scripture. But now, 
We are released from the law, have been died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Our new landlord is the Spirit himself, God dwelling in us. Go to your chart now and where you see sanctification, right? capital S, Spirit. All right, sanctification is that long word to describe us becoming more like Christ. And guess what? You can't make that happen. If you could, you didn't need Jesus Christ. If you could be good enough, his death was a waste. If you could figure it out, his death was, an, was not a necessity. The Spirit. Regiment has been replaced by relationship. There is a whole, fresh, new way of living. Our legal obligation has changed. The law no longer holds us prisoner. We are free to enjoy a new relationship, which is knowing Christ through the Spirit. Third principle, death frees us to a new motivation. Paul says one of those questions. What then? Should we say that the law is sin? No. He says, of course not. By no means. What a ghastly thought. And then he gives an illustration. He said, I wouldn't have known what coveting was if the law had not said, don't covet. All right? So what he is saying is that the law, this Old Testament, five books, the Ten Commandments, once they're on the scene, their purpose is to reveal sin to be sinful as it is because sin is deadly. And the law says don't steal. It has bad consequences. Don't kill. There are consequences for that. Don't covet. There are consequences for that. The law points out sin. But the law was never intended to make you sin. Sin took the law, Paul says here, and used it for its advantage. You say, how does that work? Let me illustrate. I shared this because uh, we're right at Romans in my New Testament class, and I shared this with my class this week. Years ago, when I was trying to figure out seminary, I went to Dallas, Texas. I visited Southwestern Seminary and Dallas Theological Seminary. So I was staying in downtown Dallas and against better advice, trekked through downtown by myself to the Dallas Museum of Art because I heard that there was a display of large Russian icons. They were 10, 12 feet tall, a thousand years old, and they were painted to, uh, to, to convey saints. And in the Orthodox Church, they use these still today to pray. So I was thrilled. Russian icons, a thousand years old. I happen to be in the city. I get to see this uh, collection. So I walk in and I notice several signs. What do you think those signs say? Do not touch. As soon as I saw the sign, what did I want to do? Touch. Now, was the sign's purpose to make me touch the icons? No. 
The law did not make me want to do that. What made me want to touch them? Sin in me. Took the law which said do not touch. And all of a sudden, I lie you not, it reveals the depravity of my heart. I forgot about Russian icons. And I ventured on this trek to figure out how I could touch those without getting caught by guards who were stationed every 10 feet, dressed in all black. And so I honestly told I have the paper in my hand saying this is what this one is and this is what that one is and, and I should be enjoying a thousand-year-old Russian icons. But going through my mind is, okay, this is how I can touch and not get caught. And so I devised a plan. And my plan was to bring my face to my hand as if I'm scratching my face, leaning up like I'm really taking one of these things in, and then as I'm doing this, taking it in, I'll just do that really fast, and I will have touched one. That was my thought. And so I get to a place, I'll look, guard to the left, guard to the right. They're everywhere. These things are uh, hanging on these walls, and you could walk right up to them. And so I scratch my face, I get close, I'm looking in, and I do that like that. And as soon as I did, bam, on my hand, on my shoulder, a hand. And this voice said, the sign says, do not touch. And I look around to see a burly woman who could straight up take me. <laughs> wow. Caught in the act. That's what the law does, isn't it? The law, which says do not, connects like claws to your sinful nature, which says, oh, but I want to, and produces in you all kinds of want to. So then how do you live this life that honors God when you never lost that sinful nature and the law is still the law. How do you do it? When you died with Christ, when Jesus Christ died, you, spiritually speaking, died with him. And when you did, you moved from being Hypondros the law to being married to Jesus. Whole new relationship. The law is an external objective standard to which we conform. The spirit is an internal subjective person to whom we relate. So what happens? Well, sin uses the law to its advantage, but sin cannot and will never use the Spirit to its advantage. The Spirit will never be manipulated by sin. So all through the day, if you listen, as a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit who came to live within you is saying, yes, no, don't say that. Don't look at that. Reach out to her. 
Come to her defense. Love him in spite of who he is and what he has done. The Holy Spirit lives in you, loves you, calls the shots, says this is how to live. Always accords with Scripture. And when you blow it, what does he do? Convicts. Doesn't put you on a guilt trip. No. Grace points you back to the cross. See what Jesus did for you? You were crucified with him. You no longer live, but Christ lives in you. Brings you back on track. And you go again. It's a whole new way to live. It's a whole new way to think. I think the most profound example of this in all of Scripture to me is the most unlikely person. Jesus was hanging on the cross unfairly tried, unfairly found guilty, unfairly crucified. He was completely naked, a crown of thorns pulled hard down around his head, his side dripping blood and water, his back so beaten. But then there were two guys. Uh, They were criminals. You see, crucifixions were not well attended in Jesus' day. Jesus' crucifixion drew a crowd, but they were sadly uh, commonplace, and it was the uh, capital punishment of the day. These two guys just happened to be crucified with a celebrity. There was a crowd. So one of them looks over at Jesus and mocks him, and then the other, also stripped naked, who was a thief who most likely had not even a mother there to mourn his passing, no friends because he was considered to be a derelict and a drain on society. He hung there that day. And he began to talk. And what he said is mind-blowing. He looked over at this beaten, naked Jesus. And he spoke to the other criminal who was mocking him. And he said, this man has done nothing. He he doesn't deserve to be here. We are are justly hanging here. We're criminals. We deserve to hang here. He doesn't deserve to be here. And and he asks the most unlikely-looking king if he can be part of his kingdom. And Jesus looks at that derelict, 
this cancer in society, this unwanted criminal and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Don't miss that he didn't have time to do community service. He didn't have time to go make restitution to everyone from whom he stole. He didn't have time to go prove himself, join a church, get baptized, pay his tithe. He had no time to do all of those things that that Christians do. He died. Jesus died. And I honestly wonder, is this how it went down? Jesus is going into paradise, having finished the work the Father laid on him. And his arm is out. And here's a naked, bleeding criminal. And he says, look, Dad. Look, look who I got. Here's the first one. This is the first convert. This is the first Christian ever. This is the first follower of a crucified Jesus. Dad, we're starting this thing called Christianity. And here's the first guy. That's how we got our start. He's the first one. And you thought you had to be good? You thought you had to measure up? You can't. Why? Because the girl in the room who's never given her body to another man and is saving herself for marriage is just as guilty as the woman in the room who has slept with more men than she can even count. We're all the naked thief begging Jesus to save us. It's why Bob can't pray without crying. Wow. We have to let this sink in. We've got to let this sink in. Let's pray.
Father, Papa, there's an old song we sometimes sing to you which says, nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. It is true. We are helpless and hopeless unless you, Christ, bring hope through your shed blood on the cross, your glorious resurrection, and we are born again. Pray for lost people who sit here this morning and they've just simply tried to make themselves better. May they become in their thinking and in their realization the naked thief on the cross who has nothing to say for himself. But remember me when you come into your kingdom. I pray for believers who forgot that their death, that your death, Jesus, not only saved them, but your power keeps them. They've just this week answered the door to the law. I pray that they would see that you, Jesus, stand ready to answer the door every time the old landlord knocks. Thank you for the best. Amen.